You're listening to the RBN Energy Blogcast. This is an audio version of RBN's Daily Energy Blog, which is a fun and informative daily commentary on oil, gas, NGL, and renewable markets. Each morning, we cover commodity fundamentals and industry changes to keep you informed of developing trends across the energy landscape. Monday, August 9th, 2021. Knocked out. CO2 users face supply issues, higher prices as carbon sequestration grows. Published by, Jim Mullen. The law of unintended consequences may be about to play out in society's quest to sequester, or permanently store underground via enhanced oil recovery and other means, the carbon dioxide captured at ethanol plants, power generators, and other industrial facilities in the U.S. Well, there are many legitimate, important uses for that man-made CO2, including in food processing and beverage making, among other industries, and diverting large volumes of captured CO2 from them to EOR and other sequestration methods due to highly attractive government incentives may put the squeeze on CO2 supply and send prices soaring. No one said that saving the planet would be easy or uncomplicated. In today's blog, we discuss a possible hitch in the push to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and how it might be dealt with. It's not enough anymore for folks in the U.S. energy industry to track only what's going on in the markets for crude oil, natural gas, NGLs, and refined products. Nowadays, with an increasing emphasis on decarbonization and ESG, it's also important to keep an eye on what's happening with hydrogen and carbon dioxide. H2. It's viewed by many as a logical no or low carbon enhancement in energy markets. And CO2. Hydrocarbon producers, midstreamers, refiners, and other market players are under pressure to reduce their CO2 emissions and to mitigate the emissions they can't avoid, spurring interest in things like carbon offsets, carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, carbon capture, use, and sequestration, or CCUS, and other mechanisms for ratcheting down the release of greenhouse gases, or GHGs, into the atmosphere. For the past couple of years, we've been educating ourselves on H2, CO2, and other topics that have come to the fore. One thing we've learned is that there are a number of commonalities between these commodities and hydrocarbons including, for example, their dependence on pipelines for cost-efficient transport. We've also figured out that, as with oil, gas, NGLs, and refining, the more you learn about H2 and CO2, the more you come to grasp the complexity of their markets. Here's a case in point. In our ongoing blog series The Air That I Breathe, we've been discussing the potential for significantly expanding the use of EOR, pumping CO2 into otherwise depleted oilfields to produce more oil and permanently sequester more CO2, and sourcing an increasing share of the CO2 from industrial carbon capture projects. Currently, most of the CO2 used in EOR is tapped from natural reservoirs, which means the resulting EOR operations have no net impact on CO2 emissions. Switching to industrial sources of CO2 for EOR offers obvious benefits, keeping massive volumes of CO2 out of the atmosphere producing oil that may qualify as carbon neutral or even carbon negative, and potentially lucrative government incentive programs, especially the Section 45Q federal tax credit, but it also brings with it a host of complications. So does capturing CO2 and sequestering it underground without using it for EOR. Well, it can be easy to forget that CO2 is more than the molecules emitted as a result of hydrocarbon combustion. It's also an in-demand commodity and an important input in the fertilizer, food processing, and beverage industries, not to mention in the energy industry for EOR. 
Much of the CO2 used in food processing and beverage production is already sourced from ethanol plants and other industrial companies that capture and sell their CO2, which means that any additional CO2 these suppliers divert to oil fields for EOR or to sequestration sites would mean less CO2 for use in processing beef, pork, chickens, and turkeys, collectively known as protein processing, and making carbonated beverages. And when you explore the inner workings and underlying economics of the CO2 market, you see that it's a seller's market with buyers of CO2 needing consistent supply that is met either by industrial companies that largely view it as a waste product or by CO2 producers that have their own production costs to cover. There's a lot to unpack here, so to mix metaphors, we'll begin with the big picture. Our understanding is that North America, the geographic focus of our blog series, accounts for about one-third of global CO2 demand, and that the largest users of CO2 by far are the fertilizer industry, for the production of urea, the primary source of the nitrogen in fertilizer, and the energy industry, mostly for EOR. The generation and consumption of CO2 in urea production is, in a way, a separate world of its own. It's complicated, but basically it goes like this. The steam reformation of natural gas produces hydrogen, or H2, and carbon monoxide, or CO, which is then upgraded to increase the yield of H2 and produce CO2. The CO2 is removed, and the H2 is reacted with N2 or nitrogen to form ammonia, or NH3. Then the ammonia and the previously removed CO2 are typically reacted at a plant next door to form ammonium carbamate, which is dehydrated to form urea. Put simply, the CO2 required for urea production is, in essence, provided by adjacent ammonia plants. A portion of the CO2 generated in ammonia production is sold to others. The next biggest user of CO2, as we said, is the energy industry, mostly for use in EOR, which we've discussed at some length in our blog series called The Air That I Breathe. Taken together, fertilizer production and EOR account for the vast majority of CO2 use, with the remaining share falling into a broad, diverse category we'll call the merchant market. Within the merchant market are protein and other food processors, beverage makers, metals fabrication and other industries. Red Slice and a host of other users, dry ice, municipal water treatment, fire suppression, etc. It's the merchant market that could face real challenges from CO2 supply and price perspectives if, as seems likely, more and more man-made, captured CO2 is either directly sequestered in deep, underground wells or used and sequestered through EOR. As we said in part 3 of our CO2 slash EOR blog series, a number of major initiatives have been proposed to gather, pipe, and sequester captured industrial CO2. One of the most noteworthy is the plan by a partnership of Valero Energy, a BlackRock Energy Fund, and Navigator Energy Services to develop a 1,200-mile CO2 pipeline system in the Midwest that will gather and transport CO2 captured at eight Valero ethanol plants to a sequestration site in south-central Illinois. To hear more about that project, tune into today's It's a Gas CO2 webcast to hear Navigator CEO Matt Vining, as we noted, Ethanol plants in the U.S.'s heartland are among the leading suppliers of CO2 to the protein-slash-food processing and beverage sectors, and for these CO2 users the prospect of losing even a portion of that supply to CO2 sequestration is, to put it bluntly, a little scary. To help understand why, we'll focus on one group of companies, protein processors, and discuss, one, how they use CO2, two, the sources of CO2 supply, three, how CO2 is delivered and priced, four, how vulnerable these companies, and other CO2 users already are to CO2 shortages, and, five, how the situation may worsen as the pace of government-incentivized CO2 sequestration picks up. 
the protein processing sector accounts for about half of the food processing industry's share of the merchant market for CO2. The most common use of CO2 among protein processors is for cryogenic chilling in meat mixers and tumblers, prepping sausages and ground meat and poultry, others include freezing, dry ice, vacuum packaging, CO2 within sealed packages helps extend shelf life, and what's known as the controlled atmospheric stunning, or CAS, of hogs, turkeys and some chickens before they are slaughtered. CAS is considered to be more humane than electrical stunning. At first glance, it would appear that protein processors and other participants in the merchant market for CO2 can turn to a variety of sources for their CO2 needs. 32% of CO2 supply for this market came from ethanol plants, followed by 25% from natural wells, and 21% each from ammonia plants and refiners. However, as we'll get to next, the cost of transporting CO2 is a major factor in overall CO2 costs, and with a disproportionate number of protein processors located in the Midwest and Great Plains regions, Many of these companies depend heavily on relatively nearby ethanol producers for their CO2 supply. Even under normal circumstances, that CO2 supply from ethanol producers can be problematic. Ethanol producers' primary business is, well, ethanol production. The sale of captured CO2 is only a sideline, at least so far, and it's not uncommon for them to shut down ethanol production for any number of reasons, including slack ethanol demand, sometimes leaving CO2 buyers to scramble for replacement supply. That's exactly what happened during the spring of 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic was raging across the country and demand for gasoline and ethanol plummeted, leading about three-quarters of U.S. ethanol plants to shut down. CO2 is, currently at least, a low-cost commodity. Transported by truck, it has a delivered price of between 5 and 9 cents per pound as a compressed liquid and between 9 and 16 cents per pound as pelletized dry ice. It takes about 1.6 pound of CO2 to make one pound of dry ice pellets. The relatively wide range in prices is largely a reflection of the distance between the CO2 supplier and the protein processing plant. Remarkably, a typical CO2 truck hauls only about $2,500 worth of CO2, and a substantial portion of the cost is tied to the truck itself, the driver, and the fuel used during transport. When protein processors need to source their CO2 from more distant suppliers, as happened in the spring of 2020 when most ethanol producers shut their plants, the per pound cost of CO2 can soar. Given the vast volumes of CO2 that protein processors need for their operations, those higher costs can sting. But processors' biggest fear nowadays is that, with the big push to sequester CO2, via EOR or direct underground storage, a substantial share of the merchant market's CO2 supply will be diverted to those incentives-backed alternatives, leaving them to fight it among themselves for the remaining supply. We'll discuss that in an upcoming blog. Knocked Out was written by Babyface, L.A. Reed, and Daryl Simmons. It appeared as the second song on Paula Abdul's debut studio album, Forever Your Girl. Released as the first single from the album in May 1988, it went to number 8 on the Billboard Hot R&B slash Hip Hop Songs chart and number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100 Singles chart. The song was recorded in September 1987 and produced by Babyface and L.A. Reid. Personnel on the record were Paula Abdul, lead, backing vocals. Babyface, keyboards, backing vocals. L.A. Reid, LM1 programming, drums and percussion programming, KO, Moog bass. And Daryl Simmons and Pebbles, backing vocals. Forever Your Girl was recorded between September 1987 and April 1988 and produced by Oliver Liber, Glenn Ballard, Babyface, Jesse Johnson, Elliot Wolf, L.A. Reid, and Curtis Williams. Released in June 1988, 
The LP went to number one on the Billboard Top 200 Albums Chart and has been certified 7x Platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Six singles were released from the album. Paula Abdul is an American singer, dancer, choreographer, actress, and television personality. She started her career as a cheerleader for the LA Lakers and became a choreographer at the height of the music video era. Abdul started her music career with the release of her debut album in 1988, and since then has released two more studio albums, five compilation albums, one EP, and 17 singles. She has won three American Music Awards, one Grammy Award, and five MTV Video Music Awards. Abdul has been a judge on several popular television talent shows, starting with American Idol in 2002. Currently, she is a judge on The Masked Dancer. Thanks for listening to the RBN Daily Energy Blogcast. For more information on energy market reports, maps, and consulting engagements, please visit us at rbnenergy.com. And thanks for rocking with us.